If uh, any of you are true fans of the old Superman comics, then you have no doubt heard of a character called Bizarro. Bizarro was a supervillain who first appeared in the DC comic book series back in 1958 and was created as kind of a mirror image of Superman. But Bizarro was a flawed version or clone of Superman, flawed in that instead of being a copy of Superman, he was an opposite. In fact, for Bizarro, everything was the opposite. In his mind, bad was good and good was bad. Bizarro even lived on a planet called Hatre, which is Earth spelled backwards, and it was a planet that was square and not round. Plus, its society was ruled by the Bizarro Code that said this, us do opposite of all earthly things. Us hate beauty. Us love ugliness. It is big crime to make anything perfect on Bizarro World. So for old Bizarro and all those living in Bizarro World, everything is just the opposite of what goes on here on planet Earth. Now, I have a purpose for sharing that random comic book memory with you because as we continue in our series this morning called The Standard, in which, we, which is based upon the greatest sermon ever preached by none other than Jesus himself, what we find is that much of what Jesus is sharing in this sermon is the opposite of how we human beings normally think or act. They are kind of counterintuitive. They seem more designed for life in bizarro world because they go against the grain of society's norms. How many of you know, however, that society's norms are not godly? And out of all of the Beatitudes, the one that we are studying today is probably the most counterintuitive of them all. And it's in our text this morning. It'll be up on the screen behind me. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. And it says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, this one just doesn't make sense. It seems illogical. It's like saying, happy are those who are sad. I mean, who in their right mind wants to mourn? Mourning means tear, tears and grief and, and, and sorrow and loss. And it makes us think of, of funeral homes and, and empty places at the table and cemeteries and, and shattered dreams. Let me put it this way. If poor in spirit is the last thing that people in the world want to be, well, then mourning is the last thing in the world people want to do. In fact, I think when Jesus talked about the blessedness of, of mourning, it is conceivable that someone in the crowd that day might have laughed out loud. They might have assumed that Jesus was joking. And I say this because in Luke's written gospel account of this part of Jesus' message, he provides what I believe is Jesus' response to laughter in the crowd that day. In Luke 6.25, Jesus says, Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. I'm sure when Jesus said this, everyone, including the individual who now realized he had put his foot in his mouth, realized that Jesus was kidding, wasn't kidding. They, they, it, it finally hit them that they heard what he said, and it was right. He had actually said that people who mourn are blessed of God. People who receive the approval of God. 
Now, before we get into what this perplexing verse actually means, let's look at it from the opposite viewpoint. Let's, let's talk about what it, it doesn't mean. Jesus is not saying, blessed are the grim, cheerless Christians. And this is important for us to know because I, over the years, I believe a lot of believers have apparently interpreted it this way. Charles Spurgeon once, uh, once said or remarked that some preachers he had known, and I quote, appeared to have their neckties twisted around their souls. Robert Louis Stevenson must have known some preachers like that because he said, as if it were a surprise, I've been to church today and I'm not depressed. Well, Jesus is not talking about forlorn, pessimistic, negative believers in this verse. No, he's referring to mourn, nor is he referring to mourning for the wrong reasons. And what I mean by that is there are types of mournings that, that is not blessed. For example, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 13, verse 2, Anon mourned because his lust was not fulfilled after he assaulted his half-sister. And in 1 Kings 21.4, Ahab mourned because he, was, he, he desperately coveted Naboth's vineyard and he could not get it. These are, this is not the kind of mourning that Jesus is talking about here. So what did Jesus mean? Well, to answer those questions, we're going to have to do another New Testament Greek lesson, just like we did last week. As you will recall, last Sunday we talked about two different Greek words that were used for the word poor. One was penespor, which referred to very poor people, people who, who worked but had just enough to barely scrape by. And then there was takispor. It was a Greek word for, for desperately poor, for begging poor. And so we understood through that Greek vocabulary that, that when Jesus made this blessed are the poor in spirit comment, he was describing someone who, who realized they were absolutely destitute in the spiritual sense. They were hopelessly bankrupt before God's grace. Well, today, as we come to verse 4, we add a third Greek word, which is pentheo. And it's a word that we translate into to mourn. But that two-word translation really doesn't suffice, because getting at the complete meaning of a Greek word is never a simple thing. So we need more information. So here goes. There are nine different Greek words in the New Testament for sorrow or mourning. And that word pentheo is the strongest one of them all. In the first century, pentheo was used to describe the most heartfelt grief that an individual could experience. It was a, it was a deep sorrow that caused the soul to ache. It caused the heart to break. And it's an agony that expresses itself usually through uncontrollable sobbing and weeping and wailing. You know, when my father passed away, it seemed uh, I was okay outwardly. I, I, I didn't mourn too much until after his death. It was interesting. What I mean by that is I was certainly devastated by the loss of my father. It just didn't manifest itself at that time with lots of tears and with lots of crying. But eventually, my emotions were unleashed when, of all things, I was watching the World War II movie, Saving Private Ryan. You see, my father served in the United States Army in World War II. He enlisted as, at 16 years of age and lied and said he was 18. He spent over five years on the European front. And as I watched the first half hour, 
of that movie unfold and all the death and devastation on those young men who were storming the beaches of Normandy, I couldn't help but think of my father, of his sacrifice, of his love for this country, and how a 16-year-old boy grew up to be a man in Europe in the environment of, of a horrible, devastating war. And as I'm watching this movie of my father's generation, of which I believe to be the greatest generation that this country has ever known or ever will know, I became overwhelmed with grief. And I started sobbing and I started crying. At that moment, my father's death became, became very real to me, more than ever before, and my sorrow just flowed out of me uncontrollably. I cried like a baby. And that's the, that's the kind of mourning this word pentheo describes in Jesus' day. Here's some biblical examples. In the Septuagint, the early Greek version of the Old Testament, the word pentheo is used to describe Joseph's grief when he was told that his son Joseph, or excuse me, Jacob's grief when he, when he described or found out that his son Joseph was dead in Genesis 37, 34. It reads, then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned his son many days. It's also a word that is used in Mark 16.10 to describe the response of Jesus' followers to his crucifixion, where it says they mourned and wept. But in addition to looking at the Greek word here, I also want to do like we did last week and look at a few other biblical translations of Matthew 5.4, because I think it will help. The Message Bible puts it this way, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. The J.B. Phillips version words it this way, how happy are those who know what sorrow means. So we're talking about the blessedness of heartfelt mourning, of deep sorrow. The point Jesus is making here is that if we are truly going to become more like him, which should be the goal of every man and woman of God, we must not just be, just have poor in spirit, desperate hearts. We must also have mourning, broken hearts. And before we go any further, let me share with you some basic facts about sorrow that lead to mourning. I believe these facts will help all of us to appreciate this part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And the first thing I want to point out is very simple. The reason this verse is hard for us to understand is because our culture does not consider mourning as a virtue. I mean, everything in our society opposes the spirit of this second beatitude. It's interesting, if you ever walk through the Barnes & Noble store and you browse through the magazine section, you'll see all kinds of faces on the covers of these magazines, but you'll never, ever see a sorrowful face. The covers that I see are always of happy men, happy women, people with perfect hair, and the shiniest white teeth I've ever seen. Life is obviously good for these people. They're happy. I read about a cover on Oprah's popular magazine once that had a statement on the front of it, how to calm down and cheer up. Apparently, the whole happiness was the whole topic of this particular issue. It even had a special bonus called the bad mood cure. And have you ever noticed the, the ads about drugs on television, the legal drugs? The way they speak when they list the serious and even the deadly side effects of the drug, it's always done with a happy tone. This may cause heart disease, cancer, depression, and even death. 
Thank you very much. Am I right? Thank you. And what about our newscasts, nightly news, newscasts? When they do report a bad scene, a bad accident, something going on, the newscasters say it with a sort of inflection in their voice, or they'll be followed by a funny story or something to divert your attention. What I mean is that the mantra of our culture is the exact opposite of this beatitude. Most of us believe, blessed are those who laugh their way through life, when in reality, what should cause all of us to mourn is the fact that our entertainment is so uh, oriented towards happiness that we laugh at things that should cause us to cry. We have an entire genre of humor out there today called raunch humor. And the, and the, the things that this kind of humor laughs at should make us blush and it should make us mourn when we hear it. You know, many, in many of the world's cultures, Parents raise their children with the mindset to be successful, to work hard, and, and to achieve. In other nations, children's are, children are taught the, the value of studying and diligently preparing for their future. And at one time, I think our nation was on the cutting edge of doing that, but I think things have changed. Nowadays, more than anything, we want our children to, to avoid any difficulty, to avoid any hardship. We just want our kids to be happy. I wonder how many times an American kid has gone to their mom and dad and talked about their lives and what they should do for a living, and their parents' response was, do whatever makes you happy. Why not? After all, it's a, it's a founding document of our nation. The Declaration of Independence says, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We live in a culture which makes the pursuit of happiness the chief goal of life, and therefore we are a bunch of people who are pleasure mad. We, we avoid problems. We tend to run from difficulties. We despise troubles. We don't want to deal with things that make us unhappy because we already believe that life is tough enough. Our society says Forget your troubles. Turn your back on them. Do everything you can not to face them. Sorrow is bad. Happy is good. Things are bad enough as they are without you going and looking for trouble. So don't mourn. And my favorite one in that famous song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. This reluctance to embrace mourning has even found its way into the church among the very people who should understand and know about the importance of mourning. I did a Google search, and I found several churches who call themselves the Happy Church. There is one located in Jackson, Kentucky. It's even located on, get this, Happy Lane. <laughs> and when I flip through the Christian television cable channels, there's one pastor who I won't name, but his church obviously embraces this happy-only philosophy. He's so positive, and he smiles so much that I really wonder what's behind that smile. And listen, I consider myself a happy and a positive person, and I do believe it is important that we express our joy, the kind of joy that we are given through a relationship with Christ Jesus. But when we begin to act like there, when we begin to act like there's nothing sorrow-worthy, or we try to mask our mourning with a fake smile. That's not natural. And I think believers who do that are embracing the world's way of thinking. 
They're becoming a people who seek entertainment and pursue pleasure above all other things. They have forgotten the importance of the blessedness of mourning. You see what I'm getting at? One reason the message of this beatitude is so hard for so many of us to grasp is because we don't like to mourn. To us, it is not a virtue. To us, it seems more like a curse. Well, the second thing I want to point out is this. Our mourning clearly indicates what is truly important to us. I mean, we tend to grieve and weep and mourn only over things that are most precious to us. So in essence, our grieving displays what we value in life. I remember back when a United Airlines passenger was forcibly removed by security officers from the plane and someone caught it on film. As he was dragged, bruised and bleeding from the cabin, people mourned along with him. There were gasps and cries and passengers said, what are you doing? Look what you've done. Because they had it on film. Somebody was filming this whole thing. People were shocked because of the well-being of that man. And it was important to them because he was a fellow passenger. Plus, they knew if they continued to fly the friendly skies, they might be next. And you know, we all mourned over what happened on 9-11. Because those people who suffered were important to us. Their loss affected us deeply. We mourned because we valued their lives as fellow Americans. And I could go on and on, but I think you get my point. Our mourning shows our values. It shows what is important to us. The last fact that I want to mention is the things we mourn over show our level of maturity. I mean, little children cry over things that seem trivial to us older people. I read about a terrible train accident in Great Britain that killed a number of passengers several years ago. In one of the cars was a mother with a little child in her arms, and the mother was dead. The child was unharmed. And when the rescuers took the child away from the dead mother, the child laughed and played. The fact that her mother was dead did not even register to this child because she had no experience with death. She did not know her mother was dead. She wasn't old enough. She wasn't mature enough to even understand what was going on. But she did know about her candy because when they took her candy away from her, she, she had a breakdown. Do you see what I'm talking about here? The things we mourn about or over show our maturity level. So let me pause at this moment, and you can answer these things in your mind. What do you mourn over? What bothers you the most in life? Do you mourn over the truly important things? Would you say that your mourning indicates that you are a mature person or an immature person? So with those basic points out of the way, let's take a closer look at this verse. Jesus is saying, blessed, or to be congratulated are those who pentheo. Blessed are those who mourn deeply. Blessed are those who mourn visibly, for they will be comforted. What exactly is our Lord saying we should mourn over in this part of the Beatitudes? What is he trying to teach us here? I think Jesus was referring to several things. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Three kinds of mourning that we should not avoid, no matter what our culture says. Three values that I believe that we need to embrace as people of God. Three sources of grief that should be found in all truly maturing, growing Christians. 
And I believe the first thing that Jesus is teaching us here is simple. We should mourn our losses in life. In other words, we should grieve and we should mourn over things like the loss of life, terminal illnesses, injustice, and cruelty that goes on in our world. Jesus is saying that this kind of, a, of mourning is a blessed thing. It is a good thing. Yes, as Christians, we should be joyful, but there are times when we must mourn. As your pastor, I know some of you have gone through very serious health issues, and some of you are going through them right now. And naturally, that tends to make you somewhat afraid of the future. Some of you have experienced relational breakdowns with a friend or even a spouse, and it's eating your heart out. Many of you have lost family or friends recently, or you fear that you might in the near future. The fact is, all of us in this church know what it's like to cry and to mourn and to lament over the losses of life. We can all relate to the words in Psalm 6-6 where it says, I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with tears. Well, I believe that the one thing that Jesus is saying in this verse is that this kind of mourning is a good thing. You see, God made us to weep. He designed our emotional and physical systems to interact in such a way that we can vent our fears and our anxieties through mourning. Grief over things like this, grief that leads us to cry, is therapeutic. It is good for us. Doctors and psychologists say that weeping releases the healing process in a person's life. This process enables us to accept the pain. It enables us to work our way through it and to readjust back into life again. They also say that when we don't mourn, when we hold our pain and anxiety in, we literally poison our system. The Bible tells us about the heroes of the faith, and uh, they didn't make this mistake. They didn't avoid holding their, their emotions in. They didn't avoid visible grief. So they, mounted, they, they mourned excuse me, over the natural losses of life. As an example, Abraham wept, as I think any man would, when his wife died. David wept when Absalom, his re rebellious son, who was out to get him, was killed in battle. Paul wept when he said farewell to his friends from Ephesus, and they wept right along with him. So as it says in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, to everything there is a season, a time for every purpose under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to weep, and a time to laugh. And you know something, mourning is not only physically and emotionally therapeutic, but it is also a great teacher for us. Through it, we learn things that we would never learn otherwise. And there are things we must learn if we are going to grow as we desire. For example, ironically, sorrow increases our appreciation of joy. You know, the, the Arab people have a proverb that says, all sunshine makes a, a desert. Because people who live in the desert, they know this better than anyone else. If, if the land in which the sun shines constantly, what will happen is it will soon become an arid place in which no fruit will grow. There are certain things that only rain can produce. 
And in a similar way, there are certain experiences that only sorrow and mourning can generate for us. Think about it. Where do we go, or excuse me, when we go through sorrowful times, we learn how kind people can be, don't we? When you are in deep mourning and people know about it, they are so kind to you. It's just something triggers inside of them to come and say kind things to you. I mean, mourning takes us, makes us truly grateful for the good things that happen in life. The fact is, when things go well for us, when they go really, really well, it, it's possible for us to live kind of on the surface of things. But when sorrow comes, we begin to truly understand. We begin to truly understand the important things, the precious things, and the deep things of life. Pain teaches us principles that we could never, ever learn from pleasure. One poet put it this way, I walked a mile with pleasure, she chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow, and ne'er a word said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. But perhaps the best benefit of the inevitable sorrows of life are the main, and the main reason mourning over them is a blessed thing is because often they push us closer to God. It pushes us to God. Sorrow humbles us, and it reminds us that we need God's presence. And I will testify to you that I have found that God draws especially close to me during the difficult times of life. When my heart is, is troubled or breaking over something, I can almost feel the arms of my Heavenly Father wrap around me. How many of you have learned that? That's biblical. This lines up with the teachings found in the Scriptures. Hebrews 4.15 says that Jesus, our high priest, sympathizes with our weaknesses. In Isaiah 53.34, it says that Christ has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Psalm 34, 18 says, The Lord is near to those who have a broken heart and saves such as have a contrite spirit. And Psalm 56, 8 says that God collects every tear we shed. Did you know that? It says, You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. These verses proclaim the reassuring fact that God truly does care about our sorrows. He draws close to us in times of mourning. He comforts us in these times. So when you feel like crying, just get down on your knees and let those tears fall. Run to your heavenly father the way that you used to run to your earthly parents when you were a child and you fell down and you scuffed your knee. Run to God and cry out to him because he understands. He cares. He will provide you with a form of comfort that is indeed a blessed experience. As the psalmist, who obviously had done this, writes in Psalm 3011, you have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have put off my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness. So mourning can be a blessed thing because it pushes us closer to God. And in fact, sometimes it takes a crisis to motivate us to decide to follow Jesus in the first place. John R.W. Stott former minister of All Souls Church in London, once conducted a poll of his, con his congregation. He wanted to find out what, it, what actually caused his members to decide to put their faith in Christ and to become Christians. 
He was surprised to find that the majority listed as the greatest single factor a feeling of personal desperation, a sense of being at the end of their own personal resources. A time of blessed mourning is what drove most of these people to faith in God. So mourning and lamenting over our losses in life can indeed be a a blessed thing, a thing that enables us to experience the comfort of God. Well, I believe the second kind of mourning that Jesus was referring to here, a second thing that he is saying mature believers should all mourn over is that we should cry over others' condition. He was saying that mourning for the suffering of other people is a good thing. It's a blessed thing. As I just said, God comforts us in times of mourning. But he doesn't want that comfort and compassion to just stop. In essence, he wants us to recycle it. He wants us to be a conduit of the comfort that he gives to us that we have received and to send it on to someone else who desperately needs it. So Matthew 5, 4 reminds us that the essence of Christianity is really caring. Blessed indeed. Applauded by God is the person who cares so intensely for the suffering and the, and the sorrows and the needs of other people that they mourn deeply, that they mourn visibly, and then they let that mourning prompt them to do something to help. Followers of Jesus Christ should mourn for the sorrows of others, and they should mourn so much that they, in fact, do something about it. In fact, if you look back on the history of the world, This would be a sorrowful place, an even more sorrowful place than it is today if it weren't for Christians who down through the centuries did exactly that. I read about the life of Lord Ashley Shaftesbury. He was a man who was instrumental in establishing legislation that stopped most of England's child labor abuses. He helped make it illegal for small children to to slave their lives away in, in, in mines and in sweatshops. He also established schools for those children, over a hundred of them before his death in 1885. And this all started when as a small boy, he witnessed a pauper's funeral out on the streets. He said there was a coffin and it was, it was shoddy and poorly made box. And it was riding on a rickety wheelbarrow. And it was being pushed by four men who he said were obviously drunk. And they pushed that wheelbarrow along. They were singing songs and they were joking among themselves. And when they began to push that wheelbarrow up a hill, the coffin fell off and it burst wide open. Now, some people would have thought that whole thing was funny. Others would have turned away in disgust, while others would have shrugged their shoulders and felt that although it was a horrible thing, that it had nothing to do with them, but not Shaftesbury. When this young boy saw what happened, he said to himself, when I grow up, I'm going to give my life to see that things like this did not happen. And he did. He dedicated his life to caring for others. Mourning for their situation prompted him to help. Well, let me ask you, do you weep for the suffering people in our world? Do tears ever come down your face when you watch the news? Do the endless stream of of headlines, of acts of terrorism that go on on the other side of the world affect your mood negatively? Or do you go about your happy life as if nothing ever happened? Does your heart break for the millions of, of hungry people on this planet who eat less food than your dog? 
How does it make you feel to see people living in abject poverty? I'm talking about the people of the world who can't even dream of the kind of opulent lifestyle that you and I live in this country every day of our lives. How did it make you feel when you saw those videos of the the nerve gas attacks in Syria? Did it affect you negatively? How do you react when you hear that more people are enslaved today than any other time of the world, many of them including young girls and women taking into sexual slavery through human trafficking? You know, I'm not big on bumper stickers, but I love this one. If you're not outraged, you're not paying attention. And as children of God, we should nurture our social conscience. It is important. One thing Jesus is saying here to us is that that, that, that insensitivity to the plight of other people is wrong. It's sin. It's wrong for us not not to grieve the hardships of others. I realize we can't solve every problem, but it's important that we grieve. We forfeit the comfort of God that God gives to people who mourn whenever we allow our hearts to become so hard toward the hurting people throughout our world. And while we're on the subject, let's take it a step further. Let me ask you this question. Do you grieve over the people who ignore God's laws and are now suffering the consequences for their sin? How do you feel about the convicted felons that fill our prisons, especially those repeat offenders? Do you grieve over the people who embrace the homosexual lifestyle, which is anything generally but gay? Do you weep for the victims of abortion, both the child and the parents who made that decision? The truth is that as Christians, we're pretty good at taking aim at those who sin differently than we do. And at times, sadly, we do it in the most harshest way. We speak up, and sometimes we shout, and we encourage people to to vote a certain way, but I wonder how many times we cry. I wonder how often do we mourn for the condition of people who ignore God's loving law and suffer the consequences. Too few of us cry over things like that. We don't mourn like the psalmist did in Psalm 119, 136, when he wrote, rivers of water run from my eyes because men do not keep your law. And there's one other aspect of this kind of mourning that we need to know. We should mourn over the condition of the billions of people in the world who don't know Jesus. The multitudes who are still lost in their sin. Remember, on Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem and the crowds were all shouting joyfully? Well, at the same time, Jesus was crying because of their, the hard hearts of the people in that city. In Matthew 23, 37, Jesus looked over the city and I'm certain with tears flowing down his face, he said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Well, do you mourn visibly or deeply over the lost in this world? Do you ever cry at night, not just over your lost family members, but those who you know, those who are your neighbors, those who you work with? Too many of us are Christians who have forgotten that people are lost without Jesus. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are separated from God both now and all eternity unless something changes. 
How can we not mourn as, as believers, those who have been redeemed? How can we not mourn over that? One pastor described Christians as being part of a dried-eyed church in a hell-bound world. Our eyes sometimes are too dry when they should be wet. So in this part of the sermon, Jesus was saying that we should lament the losses of life and that we should cry over the physical and spiritual condition of others. But you know what I believe Jesus' main emphasis is here? That we should be sorrowful for our sins. Sorrowful for our personal sins. Now, do you remember what we learned in verse 3, the statement where Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit? We said that Jesus, that, that, uh, Jesus was referring to the blessedness of the realization that we are spiritually bankrupt, totally dependent upon the grace of God. Our Lord was saying that the person who understands how lost they are is to be congratulated. Well, in this next verse, he continues that thought, and this is what I believe that Jesus is saying to us. Blessed is the man who not only recognizes his sinful state, but is also desperately sorry for it. Blessed is the man who grieves over his own sin, over his own unworthiness. He's saying it is this kind of mourning that brings the blessed comfort of our salvation because grieving over our sins pleases, or excuse me, pushes us to God. And you know what? When we do go to God, he provides it for us. This is what Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians 7.10 when he said, For godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. John Stott put it this way, It is one thing to be spiritually poor and acknowledge it. It is another to grieve and mourn over it. Confession is one thing. Contrition is another. And he's right. Contrition over sorrow of our sins leads us to repentance. It pushes us to cry out to God for forgiveness and for salvation. But please understand something. Mourning over our sin should not stop once we become Christians. Why do I say that? Because even though we are forgiven, we still sin. We should continue to grieve and mourn whenever we disobey God. We can't be comforted with a close relationship with our holy God unless we learn to mourn over those times that we yield to temptation. So whenever we sin, we should obey the words in James 4, 8 through 10, where it says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. I like what Pastor Andy Stanley writes about this. He points out the difference between a mistake and sin. He says that a mistake is a goof-up. It's an error. It's a miscalculation. We regret, we, we regret, I sound like Elmer Fudd. We, we regret mistakes. We apologize for mistakes. We might even try to make amends for a mistake. But we don't mourn a mistake. And he's right, we don't pentheo a mistake. What we must mourn, ladies and gentlemen, is sin, which is the foundational flaw in our character that compels us to think and to say and to do the wrong things. It's a skew in our spirit that consistently takes us in the wrong direction. 
For example, we were created to be generous, but we tend to lean, all of us, toward greed. We were designed to treasure our sexuality, and we just freely trash it. We just freely throw it away. We were wired to worship God. Instead, we worship our cars or, or, or professional sports or, or nature or ourselves. Andy Stanley says, we're not just mistakers, we're sinners. To mourn is to face the truth about ourselves. And the truth is that we are a messed up people living in a messed up culture. And when we finally realize this, when we finally admit that we are sinners and not just mistakers, all we can do at that point is put our heads into our hands and weep. So let me ask you, fellow Christian, how seriously do you take your sins? Does it break your heart when you know you have sinned against God, sometimes willfully, sometimes premeditatedly, sometimes it wasn't something you expected to do, but you did? It's the only way for us to receive comfort that we need, the comfort that comes from having our sin forgiven. We, is, we need to present those sins to God. The comfort that comes from that is knowing that there is life beyond the grave. And so though we mourn those who have gone before us, we know that we will see them again. That's a beautiful thing. There's a comfort that we know that there is a better world coming. There's coming a place where there'll be no more sorrow. And there'll be no more weeping. And there'll be no more mourning. And boy, don't we need to rejoice over that. 